The theme that I put down for today was God and rest. And I realized that there was far more to this subject than I had allowed time for, but I will bring you what, I, uh, what I've got. It was Augustine of Hippo who was a pastor of a church in a seedy seaside town, North Africa. Uh, he was a philosopher, actually, and he said, What then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain to him who asks, I do not know. You know what time is, don't you? If you're now asked to explain what time is, you suddenly find it's a rather difficult thought. But uh, time is something that we all have to deal with. Um, what is time? Well, let's leave aside the philosophical question. Um, how should we deal with time? That's much more practical. How should we deal with time? I haven't got enough time. Now, how much time then do we need? Who gives us an amount of time that we should say he hasn't given us enough of it? What would we do with it if we had more? All sorts of questions. Uh, there's no time. Well, of course, there is time, but we somehow run out of time sometimes, don't we? And for some people, they have too much time. They don't know what to do with their time. So time, it's all a, uh, an issue, isn't it? How to spend the days of the week, that's a very practical question. Some people might say, I'm at a loss to know how to spend the time. Some people would say, my employer demands of me so much that all I have is the time to limp home from work, crash into bed, and get up the next morning. But we all live against this framework of time. Now, that's the introduction. Whether the rest of it's as good as the introduction, I don't know. Um, let's have a little look. Let's attempt to look at how the Bible speaks to this from uh, the perspective of God who created everything. But it seems to me that the Bible says that God's created, God has created time. God has created time. It's not something that ha has been all the... See, it's very difficult to speak about this. Isn't it? All the time that God has existed, has time also existed? I think the answer is no. That time is something that he has created and he's put us within time. And that he punctuates and signifies time for us. Perhaps I can explain that a little bit as we go on. But a punctuation is when you have uh, like a full stop here or a comma there or a new paragraph or a new chapter. Time is punctuated for us. God is a God who, when he creates, works hard till it's finished. And when it's finished, he rests, enjoying the fruit of his work. And I would say, and I think I might struggle to demonstrate this, but I'll have a go, that what he is doing is heading his whole cosmos towards 
rest in Christ, in Jesus Christ. So there's a lot, lot of thoughts there, and I'll try and organize them a little bit for us this morning. So the God of the Bible, we did this last time. He is the maker of heaven and earth and everything in them. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have God's week of creation. Let's turn, please, to Genesis chapter 1. We had the whole thing read to us last week, so I didn't ask Jack to read us again the whole, the whole thing. But first book of the Bible, right at the very beginning. Many of you are very familiar with this already. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 1. And he does this creation, so we're told, through a sequence of days. Uh, When it comes to chapter 2 verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed with all their host, with all their occupants. And then on the seventh day, it says, God had finished the work he'd been doing which is something we'll come look at in a moment. But God makes the world, uh, as we're told to think of it, in these six days. And the, the days have a sort of majestic rhythm to them. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse. There was evening, there was morning. The first day there was evening, there was morning. The second day, and so on. And God makes everything by speaking, he does it with purpose and order, as we've seen. He divides things, in, uh, divides things up in spaces and then puts occupants in the spaces. He does it, he sees it, and he assesses it. He, various things, not everything, but some things. He, he says it was good. And he tells us this in a very user-oriented way. He tells it for human beings, for ordinary human beings. He doesn't even tell it for um, chemists or physicists, no equations, um, nothing like that. It's just words really to tell us how to get to heaven. That's the, the aim of it, rather than how to construct a heaven. And interestingly, he made it in a way that was not complete without Adam. It is a human-centered universe. So that's what we've seen before, and I won't stop on that. But I will just point out a couple of features of Genesis chapter 1. And the first feature is that God doesn't make the heavens and the earth at one instantaneous moment, which is worth pondering, isn't it? Because God could have just said, everything. It's all there like that. But he doesn't. He does it in stages. And it's quite deliberately told to us he does this then he does this evening and morning second day then he does this evening and morning third day and then he does this so he takes this sequence of time to do it and that I think in itself is instructive Um, I'm just thinking what happens at night time are we to understand that when it comes evening through to the morning, God actually doesn't do anything at night time either, that he just works in the, as it were, in the hours of daylight. I think that's what what it appears to say. But he uses a complete working week of six days to make everything. 
And that reminds us, and I think perhaps as a word of wisdom, he is not afraid not to do everything at once. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me. I would like to get everything done at once. I'd like to have it all finished before lunch. And there's a certain sense in which one is anxious until it's all finished. Will it ever get done? Will it ever get done? But God isn't saying, oh, I only managed to do, I only managed to do day and night this morning. I don't know whether I ever get it all finished. He's perfectly happy to do one bit, go to bed. Well, I don't know whether to go to bed, but I mean, he stops, doesn't he? He seems to stop overnight. Do the next bit the next day. Still haven't finished everything. Don't panic. That's fine. And the third day, do you see what I mean? He, he takes time. Somebody once said this to me when I was anxiously saying, oh, I'm not ready for Sunday. It was Wednesday already. He said, well, God took a whole week to make everything. So why don't you just calm down? You can't do everything instantaneously. Things take time. Even God took time to make things. So I think that is a, a useful thought. Um, Let's uh, look at another feature. God uses the first day to invent recognizable time. That's what I think is being said. Day one, which is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. Okay, we've got light separated from darkness. And he called the light. Now, you would think he's going to say he called the light light. But it doesn't say that. He called the light day. And the darkness he called night. Now, day and night are not expressions of luminous intensity, they're expressions of time aren't they? So the first thing he does, it seems, we're always cautious about what, what we say here because it's such majestic description, but it seems to me that what the, one of the first thing he does is set up a time framework. He uses the first day to invent recognizable time. He calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. And that's a time frame. And Corresponding to the first day is the fourth day, which says in verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. There's a lot of repetition and emphasis on that, but Please notice what's said. Verse 14, these lights separate day from night. 
So they separate time, day from night. And they serve, it says, for signs, for seasons, for days and years. And I would like to, to ponder those, that description in a moment. But see what it says. He's made these, um, they're called lights, so sun and the moon. To us, they seem as lights. We know that the moon doesn't generate its own light. sun does. And they're all sort of, there's things moving around. As we see it, the sun goes across the sky, the moon goes across the sky. And he says, these are there deliberately for seasons, for days, for years, to govern the day and govern the night. It also says they're to give light, so there is a, that function, but it's also emphasized that they mark periods of time. I'd like to pick up on those, those thoughts. Let's look at the, the word signs. Let them be for signs. Just stop and think about that. Uh, they're signs. So what does a sign mean? Uh, in chapter 4, verse 15 of Genesis, it's a mark. You know, Cain has a, a mark on him to, to distinguish him, um, mark him out. Well, that's the same word. He has a, a, a mark on him. Uh, the word for sign is used in chapter 9 of the rainbow, which in chapter 9, verse 12, is a sign of the covenant. And it's said in verse 13, chapter 9, verse 13, I've set my rainbow in the clouds, it will be the sign of the covenant. And chapter 17, it said this is the sign of the covenant. So a sign can just be a mark. It can link with something else. So the rainbow is a sign in the sky, but it links to a covenant that God has made uh, regarding, well, it's regarding the flood, wasn't it? So, uh, and the same thing in 1711 is that circumcision is the sign of the covenant. So a sign can link you to something else. And the moon and the sun are signs. Chapter, in Exodus 4, verse 9, when, when Moses was querying whether he would have authority in the eyes of his fellow citizens, he was given a sign. He could throw a stick on the ground and it would become a snake. And it was, that too is a sign. Told to believe the voice of the sign. Those are a few examples of this word. But sun and moon are for signs. That's interesting, isn't it? They're not to be worshipped, but they're not just random astronomical events. They, sh they show us something. God has put, put them there to indicate something more than just astronomy, more than just momentum and physics. They, they're for signs for us. And he says, 
for seasons. Uh, and I'd like to ponder that word, season. Now, you, you're thinking autumn, summer, winter. There are four seasons, aren't you? Autumn? No, that wasn't four. Spring, summer, autumn, winter, seasons. That's not usually the way this word is used. It means a set time. So in 1721, God says that he will come and visit Sarah because she will become pregnant and she will have her child at a set time. Same word, next year. A set time. The sun and the moon are there for signs and for seasons. The, the thought of the pregnancy resulting in a birth at a set time, it's rather an interesting, wasn't it? Uh, this means that, what, what carries with it, that the idea that time has potential in it. That um, if Sarah is impregnated, there will be the fruit at a set time. She will become pregnant and there will be a child at the end of that. That's a thought, isn't it? That time is the medium through which this happens. So an investment is made, if we can put it in that way, and the fruit of it comes later at the set time. It takes time. It's worth time. It's worth investing. The sun and the moon are... So for signs and for seasons, for, for, for this, this word translated set time. The word, surprisingly, uh, is to, comes from the word to meet. And of the many uses of it, according to my computer, 130 of them, it's translated, which is by far the most, it's actually translated congregation. Uh, like um, you go to the tab tabernacle of the congregation. It would be translated like that in our Bible. The, ta the tabernacle of the set time, of the, well, what would we say, like appointment? Uh, an, a, a set time to get together. A set time to celebrate. That's... So the congregation, the, the assembling, was called this, indicating, uh, I think, like a, an appointment. The Israelite calendar was a calendar of appointments. Not appointments with the doctor, but appointments to meet together in the life of the people of God. And it says the sun and the moon are for signs and they're for appointments. Uh, when the, the moon reaches a certain um, part of its rotation, uh, that sets an appointment for the people of Israel. And they would gather together at that appointment. So maybe we should think of that, that uh, the sun and the moon uh, are for this sort of thing, appointments, time to meet together, or time for something to happen. And we live in a world then which is not just flat, you know, beginning of the axis here, end of the axis there. 
but a, a world in which God has put punctuation of things connect, connected, things that happen, things that come to fruition, things where we meet together, appointments, set times. So time, you see, seems to me, uh, th th this suggests to us that, that time has meaning. It's not just an amount, you know, calculate the number of milliseconds, da-da-da. It's, it's something that has a certain richness to it. Time has possibilities. There can be set times at which a woman who has become pregnant gives birth at a set time. There can be actions that take place at set times, and there can be meetings at set times. And God, it seems to me, has embedded this in creation and is telling us that the sun and the moon, the lights, are for signs and seasons, setting time. The New Testament would take that up in a similar sort of way. It would say time is not just something that you should waste. Time is not just something you should endure. Time is something with a certain richness to it. Be careful how you live, says the Apostle Paul. Not as unwise, but as wise. Understanding this. Making the most of every opportunity. In other words, using time well. Understanding that time can be impregnated to bear a fruit later on. Time can be invested in because there's a certain productivity about time that will produce fruit later. Time can be wasted. And it isn't as though time will do this all by itself because in a fallen world, uh, there's a pressure against that. The days are evil, he says. Unless you deliberately use time well, uh, this won't happen. So some thoughts then uh, about... Uh, signs and seasons and days and years. Now, you may not know the astronomy of it. Uh, when I used to teach kids, a lot of them had no idea about the moon. Uh, they knew what, knew what the sun was, knew it went up and across the sky, but what happened to the moon, etc. The, the moon um, changes its phases over a 28-day period, it waxes and wanes. Uh, it becomes sort of invisible, and then it's illuminated in around one edge, then fully, and then round to the other edge. It takes 28 days to do that. Always does. The sun goes round in the sky, as we see it. It also goes up and down. So it's along near the horizon, and then it goes up, and that's what happens in summer, and that's what happens in winter. Uh, and even in, the, in, even in Sri Lanka, near the equator, uh, although we don't, they don't have the same s exact seasons as we do, there are still different times of the year, the rainy season, the monsoon season, the hot season, and so on. And uh, Ecclesiastes, although it doesn't use the Genesis word, for season or time. Let's see if I can find it. 
and read it to you. It has this memorable piece of wisdom. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. There is a time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. To everything there is uh, a time, a season. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible tells us there is this richness and variety in time. And we learn that time and seasons and rhythm are part of God's richness and goodness, even in this fallen world, where some of the times are times we wouldn't have chosen. It is death that is the enemy, not time. Death is the enemy. Time is not our enemy. Time is part of the richness of what God has given and the way he's made the world. And he's given us each time, hasn't he? He's given us each weeks and months and years and days and moments and minutes and seconds. And each of them is important. Each of them is given by God. Each of them is under God. Just worth thinking. And here's a little thought. Music. Music and time. Have you ever thought that at any given moment in time, music is just one set of motions of frequency. But in order to appreciate music, you have to remember what went before, don't you? Because it's moving. And memory and time are what make music possible. Is that right? Because if we, if we didn't remember how it began, we wouldn't realize the beauty of how it ended or if we didn't realize what had happened the line before then what's happening at this particular line wouldn't make any sense it all exists in time with memory and uh, well there we are that's just a thought i think make of it something if you possibly can but i think it, it tells us something about life doesn't it that uh, the value of the moment but also the value of what's led up to it, 
what God has done before, where it's heading, and so on. Okay, well, that was a bit of a meditation on the uh, uh, days one and four in creation. And now we're going to have a go at the seventh day. And we'll look at the text. So if you if you've got Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we'll just look at the text and that, uh, uh, we'll do what we can with it. It says, chapter 2, verse 2, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So I put that up on the screen. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work which he had been doing, it says in Hebrew. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And interestingly, there is no, there was evening, there was morning, day seven. We're not told that the seventh day finished. Uh, there is a sense in which when God had finished making the world, he did not have a rest and then get up and start making the world again. He made the world and then there is a, a rest which follows it. But what does that text actually say? It says, it emphasizes completeness. That's the heavens and the earth were completed. And then that word is repeated. By the seventh day, God had completed the work he had been doing. So there's an emphasis on completion. There's an emphasis on seven. It's used three times, which I underlined but in the wrong order. Uh, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work which he had been doing. God blessed the seventh day. Three times it says seventh day. And there's an emphasis on the work because God had finished the work he had been doing. And then it says he rested from the work which he had been doing. And, all, and then it goes on, he rested from all the work of creating that he had been doing or he had done. So that line's got a bit out of place. And then we have this, uh, this statement about the seventh day. He rested on the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day. And he holified the seventh day. He made it holy. So what's being, say, what's being said here? There's lots of questions about this text, um, a number of which I've got no satisfactory answer for. Um, why did God need to rest? Because we're told God does not get tired. So I'm thinking that this, uh, this tells us that the rest must be something other than just being, uh, as we would say, fagged out, just uh, you know, completely, um, you fill in the vocabulary yourself. God doesn't get tired. So I think he's showing us 
that there is a mode of being that is not work. You don't have to work all the time to be somebody. God is the creator, but that doesn't mean that he's non-stop creating things. The rest is the creator having created, appreciating what he's done, enjoying what he's done, and being enriched in having done it. That, I think, is what's happening on that seventh day. That God is not, oh dear, you know, got to get up tomorrow and um, make light all over again. Or it, it, He's done that. And he can see the things that are good. And he ceases from working and appreciates what he's done. Have you ever done that? You made something and stopped to look at it and thought, that's not bad actually. You know, I've done that needlework quite nicely. Or I cleaned that floor quite well. Or I've done that picture, that's worth hanging up and looking at, uh, um, you know, more than once. That mode of being, I don't know, do Christians have that mode of being at all? Or are we always so busy that we can never stop and say, actually, that's nice. I, I like that. I appreciate that. It's, it, 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 God has that mode of being. He shows us what it is to work hard in order to enjoy its fruits. I think that's what it's, it's saying. It, it emphasized three times, wasn't it? Three times that God worked the work that he had done, the work that he had done, the work that he had done. So God doesn't mind working. No, God is a manual worker. He makes things with his hands. In some cultures, manual work is despised. In some cultures, the only work worth doing is being an accountant, a solicitor, or a doctor. And if you can't be an accountant, a solicitor, or a doctor then you're no good. Well, that would rule God out because God isn't an accountant, a solicitor, or a doctor. He, well, he's, he is all those things, of course. But he's a manual worker. He does stuff with his hands and he makes it and then he enjoys it. And so I ask, how did he bless and make holy the seventh day? Because that is a bit of a conundrum itself. Because if you look into Genesis, the blessing is usually reserved for things that can reproduce. So I think Matt and I were talking about this uh, the other day. When he, blesses, when he blesses humanity, in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, he blessed them and says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And the blessing seems very closely linked to multiplication to the capacity of the creature to reproduce. And I think you'll find there's a blessing. Um, verse 22, God blessed, this is the fish and the birds. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. So that, that's how blessing has been used thus far. So how can God bless a day? Uh, he it does say that, doesn't it? God blessed the seventh day. And how can he make it holy? Because there was no sin for it not to be holy, you know, in our sense of becoming the opposite of sinful. So what is, what is he doing in this rest? So you can see why I can see my own limitations in this. I think what he's doing is imparting 
to this rest, something of the potential and goodness of himself to this time of refreshment and enjoyment. I think that's what he's doing with this, um, this time of not working but enjoying the completeness of what he has made. There's a sort of potential uh, and possibility and life in that that he gives to it. That's the sort of thing I think that this is talking about. And at this point, I feel that I've run out of com not only competence but also confidence, and I'm going to whoosh on um, past some of the things that I've said because the, the question is, how does this relate to everyone? How does it relate to Christ and Christians? And how does it relate to the Jewish Sabbath? And I think rather than embark on, on that, I'll just leave you with those questions. And I want to whoosh on, so watch this whoosh. Um... Let's, 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 uh, I, I did a little bit here about the, the Sabbath law and the way that Jesus had a big controversy with the Jews about their understanding of Sabbath law. Uh, and that's, that's fairly deep water. So I think I will skate on over the deep water, if that's it's actually a mixed metaphor. Uh, I've got some things I think are reasonable conclusions. So let's do, go to these reasonable conclusions. Number one, God is the God who both works and rests. So work is good, and that's a whole subject on its own, the goodness of work. But rest is good as well. We're allowed to rest. We should allow ourselves to rest. Our employers should allow us to rest. Rest, um, in, in the Bible, rest is not only a time, but it's time in a place as well, as we shall see in a moment. Well, uh, we shall see now. Psalm 95. Would you please turn to Psalm 95? This is where we began, and this is what was referred to in, in the reading in Hebrews. We began with Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And Psalm 95 ends with this sort of threat or warning which says to the people through David, Today, if you hear his hearts, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. In the past, those people did not enter my rest. And the rest that he meant was a place. It was the promised land, wasn't it? And they were not allowed to enter God's rest, this place of ceasing from work and enjoying the fruit of the work that's been accomplished. They wouldn't enter that. God is a God who both works and rests. So we're made in God's image. We're not machines. 
working 24-7 is not part of being human. And it's an increasing problem nowadays that employers, particularly in a, a um, sort of his hospitality industry that we have in Brighton, uh, demand 24-7 work or every waking hour. That's slavery. That's not what God came to bring us. Don't let yourself be enslaved. If your employer tries to enslave you in prayer and in politeness and in firmness, please resist. God did not set us free so that we could become slaves. Um, we were made to smell the roses. We were not made to wash dishes all day. Washing dishes is good, but we weren't made to wash dishes all day. We were made to go out and smell the roses. God is the God who has in mind our good and well-being. So the, the, uh, the one day in seven, uh, which is specified in the law of Moses, is not a punishment, it's not trying to make life difficult for us. It's linked with a holy blessing. And it's one of those appointment times. Uh, now, Christians, the, the early Christians, were not, uh, well, after a while, they were not in a Jewish environment. They were in a pagan environment where the, uh, um, the public holidays did not coincide with the first day of the week. Uh, Christians nevertheless met on the first day of the week. They would meet after work, we presume. Marking the day of resurrection a day for Christians to be together. Uh, in our society, our day to be together is coming under more and more pressure. I think we should try and resist that pressure, but we have a day when we can be together, and that is a, a, a precious thing. Let's, let's keep that appointment and that set time of being together. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. It's a precious thing. It helps us to survive as Christians, to meet together. So let's continue to do that. Um, I've got the six, the six plus one pattern, which I've more or less talked about already. I'm moving on. God sets before us rest as the desirable outcome. So that psalm says there's still a rest. There's still a sense in which there's going to be a time and place to enjoy the fruits of the work that God has done. And we know that the work that God has done is now not simply creation because of our, our sin. God has done another work of redemption. And there's still a rest up ahead and he says, make sure you enter that rest. Make sure you get to that place where the completed work can be enjoyed, reflected on, reveled in, relished. Make sure you get to that place. And that's the place that Jesus himself gives. There's a significant little sentence, which I'm quoting there in Matthew 11, which I'll read to you which says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
says Jesus, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I personally give you rest. Rest for your souls. I'm the giver of that. I'm the one who enters you into the rest which God uh, has, blesses, makes holy, sets apart. That time of not just working, working, working in, front, in a frantic way, but appreciating a work that's been finished. And I'm thinking of the work on the cross. He completed that work, and there's a fruit that comes from it. So let's remind ourselves of what was said in Hebrews 4, which Jack read to us, with which we'll come to a conclusion. A promise still stands of entering God's rest. There is still a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Uh, We haven't got there yet, but let's get on the track for that Sabbath rest. It begins by stopping from our works of trying to achieve salvation and resting in what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's what we're called to do in order to enter that rest. If Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest, rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. He says there is a rest. And he says, there is a rest. Make sure you get there. There is a rest. There is a blessed, holy, ceasing from striving. There is that. Make sure you get there. Make sure you trust Jesus Christ. Make sure you're believing what he said. Make sure you're using the time that he has given. To know him and to walk with him. People say, oh, I haven't got time for Jesus. I haven't got time for church. I haven't got time to read my Bible. But God says, that's what I gave you time for. Verse 